uh, summary foundation of biblical truths regarding who the Holy Spirit is, what He has done, and what He is doing. And I want to be clear, this is not an exhaustive study. This is a foundational study upon which I pray many future studies and discussions will be built. And this is an important study for us as a church because to know the Spirit is to worship God rightly. Just as we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, our worship should be immersed in an understanding of all three persons of the Godhead also. Especially God the Holy Spirit. Knowing Him and who He is and how He truly works is essential to worshiping God rightly. After all, Ephesians 2.18 says, Through Christ we have access in one Spirit to the Father. Whether we realize it or not, our worship of God is carried out in the Spirit. That is what true worship is. As the Gospel of John teaches, it is worshiping the Father through the person of and work of the Son in the Spirit and in truth. And so if we want to worship God rightly as His people, then we must know according to the truth who the Holy Spirit is and how He truly works in the hearts of His people. And so we began by asking in this study, who is He? And in short, what we saw from Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is fully God, possessing every element of the divine nature and the divine personality, having a mind, will, and emotions. He is God, and He has come to dwell in us. Then we asked, what has He done in the past? And the answer is, He has showed us the very disposition and heart of God towards us. By creating life, restraining evil, communicating truth, glorifying Jesus, and ultimately by giving us Himself, He has shown us the very heart of God, and it is one of unending love, compassion, and affection. Which led us then to ask, what is the Holy Spirit doing now? And the quick answer is, He is pointing us ever and always to Christ above all. By applying to us Christ's salvation, teaching us Christ's word, imparting to us Christ's life, and giving to us Christ's gifts, the Spirit equips us to live a life that honors and exalts Jesus Christ above all. Well, that brings us to the question that we're asking ourselves now as a church, and that is, what about sign gifts? Now, the very fact that we need to pay attention to this topic when it comes to the Holy Spirit is found in its very name, sign gifts. Signs point to something. Think of road signs, for example. Road signs always point to the presence of something on the road ahead, like a speed limit, or a speed bump, or a sharp term, or a, or a cliff. When a sign is there, it is designed to point out something and to make us pay attention to it. So it is with sign gifts. They were designed by God to point out something and cause people to pay attention to it. And what we saw is that God was pointing out and drawing attention to newly revealed, divinely inspired, universally authoritative messages from God. That is the purpose of sign gifts, both in the Old and in the New Testament. It was to authenticate a newly revealed, divinely inspired, universally authoritative message from God and to confirm its messenger. By seeing the sign gifts, in other words, people were supposed to think, oh, God is in this. That is a pretty powerful testimony. 
That's why when you study the pages of Scripture, Satan is quick to jump on this and to create deceptive signs and wonders all his own. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24 through 25, that after his death, and increasingly so before his return, many false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform what? Great signs and wonders. Why? So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. In other words, they will do signs and say, God is in this, when God really isn't in them or in their message. So Jesus teaches us here that ever since the close of the canon, the completion of Scripture, we should view signs and wonders as that which might bring us lies and not merely truth to us. Jesus teaches us here that before he returns, there will be a dominating influence of deceptive signs that will come upon the world, signs that will attempt to deceive and distract and even divert believers That's why Jesus immediately says in verse 25, see, I've told you this beforehand, right? In other words, Jesus says, don't you be taken in by this. When you see an explosion of signs and wonders happen around you, don't just assume it's from me. Don't just fall for it. Don't just assume God is in it because even Satan works in deceptive signs. See, Jesus says, I've told you this beforehand. A similar warning is given In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, where Paul says there, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. And what is the activity of Satan characterized by? With all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. You see, signs are not a reliable indicator of God being at work. They can actually be signs of deception and distraction designed by Satan to take our eyes and the eyes of others off of the sufficiency of Christ and His Word. To redirect our ambitions, to redirect our affections, and to redirect our activities away from Jesus Christ above all. And as verse 7 of that same passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 states, this activity of lawlessness is already at work in the world in which we live, and it will increase. So when talking about sign gifts, we have to at least understand and confess from Scripture that there are deceptive signs designed by Satan to keep people chasing after them rather than chasing after Christ. As Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 through 23, I don't know if you've ever noticed this from this passage before, but Jesus says this, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Right? Didn't we have all of these sign gifts? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And we see that in our world today, do we not? People constantly chasing after, where can I find the next extraordinary, spiritual, mystical experience rather than where can I grow in my knowledge of God and of His truth and in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? In our discussion of sign gifts, we must acknowledge There are false gifts. There are false signs. There are deceptive miracles designed by Satan to imitate the true. 
And we need to be able to discern, as believers, the faults from the true. In fact, we're commanded to. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And that's why we need to test the spirits to see if they're from God. We need to ask ourselves the questions that we started to ask as a church last week. We need to ask ourselves the question, does this person's experience and claim line up with what Scripture says? Does it line up with the biblical purpose, people, and past of sign gifts, or does it not? Because remember, sign gifts had a biblical purpose They were revelatory. They were designed to confirm newly revealed, divinely inspired messages from God that would be authoritative over all men over all time. They had a clear purpose. Sign gifts also had a clear people. They were largely apostolic. They were almost always given solely to those who were commissioned to write down the New Testament, the apostles, or those whom the apostles laid their hands on. And sign gifts also had a clear past. They were fulfilled. As the canon of Scripture came to a close and their revelatory purpose was fulfilled, they faded away just as Scripture foretold and demonstrates. But starting this morning, we're going to discover that sign gifts also have clear proofs. In other words, someone's subjective experience does not objectively become a sign gift from God just because they want to call it that. No, Biblical sign gifts have always had a specific criteria that has to be met in order for those experiences to be identified as genuine. In other words, these sign gifts have definitions to them. And what we need to ask ourselves the question is, are people's claims today lining up with the biblical definitions? So that's the question we're going to be asking ourselves as a church. Are these modern experiences that people are claiming to have regarding the gift of prophecy, tongues, or healing, are they the genuine and biblical gifts as revealed in the pages of Scripture? Do their experiences pass the tests? Do they pass the biblical proofs for sign gifts? Because once we can determine what genuine biblical sign gifts are, like gifts of prophecy, tongues, or healing, we can then determine whether they're still in practice today. But before we begin, let's ask the Lord to give us a knowledge of his ways according to his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have this morning to open up your word. Father, I pray that you would give us a knowledge of your ways according to your truth this morning. For we seek to honor and to worship you in spirit and in truth. So, Father, by your Spirit, lead us on level paths this morning through your Word so that we might behold your glory and worship you rightly as we ought to as your people. Help us, Father, not to be a people that are distracted or allured by various things. Help us to be attracted only to that which is true and genuine and honoring to you. Father, give us grace towards this end this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, as we seek to obey Scripture and test the spirits to see if they be from God, let's begin by asking ourselves the question, what is the genuine gift of biblical prophecy? And then consider whether this is what we're seeing in the world today. 
So first, what is the gift of genuine biblical prophecy? Now in short, the gift of prophecy, as defined in Scripture, is the supernatural ability to proclaim, speak forth revelation from God. At times, this would be proclaiming what's already been revealed. We see examples of this in Acts 13.1 and Acts 15.32, when prophecy was paralleled with the gift of teaching itself. But at other times, prophecy would also mean declaring a new revelation from God. As we see in Acts 11.27-28, when a prophet named Agabus declared that a great famine would come over all the world. So when we're talking about the gift of prophecy... What we're talking about is the supernatural ability to proclaim divinely revealed authoritative messages from God, whether old or new. Is this a gift that is present in the world today? Is the Holy Spirit still empowering individuals to proclaim new revelation directly from God? There are certainly a whole lot of people that claim this. Why, just in our last election... Social media was full of people claiming to know exactly what God was about to do. The airwaves were full of people claiming to have had a dream, a vision, a revelation, or a word from the Lord that told them exactly what was going to happen. Was this true? Well, in that instance, you could say clearly not. But what do you do when someone comes up to you and claims to have a dream or a vision or a prophetic word from the Lord that's authoritative? In other words, what do you do when someone claims to have the gift of prophecy and claims to be a direct spokesperson for God? Because that is what it is when you say, I have a word from the Lord for you. How do you discern whether that is genuine or false? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. For an experience to match the genuine biblical gift of prophecy, it needs to pass at least three biblical tests that are presented in the pages of Scripture. The tests of doctrinal consistency, personal holiness, and total accuracy. For a prophet and a prophecy to be from God, they have to pass the threefold test of doctrinal consistency, personal holiness, and total accuracy accuracy so let's look at those this morning as a church and the first test to determine whether a prophet and its prophecy is from god is the test of doctrinal consistency in other words every prophecy if it is truly from god will agree and align perfectly with absolutely everything that's been revealed before it a new prophecy will always be doctrinally consistent And before we even look at any scriptures, this test is grounded in the very character of God himself. God is truth. And as Numbers 23, 19 says, he cannot contradict himself. He cannot change his mind. And so if a revelation is truly from God, it will not contradict the revelations God has already given. It will be doctrinally consistent. Now, once you understand the foundational truth of doctrinal consistency, it becomes clear that anyone who teaches false doctrine and leads people into theological error must be a false prophet. We see this principle laid out in both the Old and in the New Testaments. First, in the Old Testament, Moses tells Israel in Deuteronomy 13, 1-5, he says this, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and he gives you a sign or a wonder 
And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. In other words, even if what he says comes to pass, if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall, verse 4, walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. And you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet... Or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Notice, this passage is clearly teaching That even if a person comes to you and performs a miracle, even if they prophesy something that turns out to be true, if what they're saying contradicts God's Word and leads a person into error, that person is a false prophet, period. In fact, notice in verse 5 that God decreed the death penalty in Israel over any person who, while claiming to be a prophet, spoke error and false teaching. That tells you how serious this offense is in the mind of God. This is very serious. And it also shows you how important this test of doctrinal consistency is over all the other tests that we're going to look at. This is the most important one. It doesn't matter whether someone can do a particular wonder or whether they can predict something in the future. What matters is, are they speaking according to the truth that God has already revealed to us? As Isaiah 8 verse 20 says, to the word and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. In other words, they don't know God, despite what signs they might show you. They don't know God if they don't speak in accordance to this word. This is the importance of doctrinal consistency. We see this test in the Old Testament. And oh boy, do we see it in the New Testament. (laughs) Just taking these passages that I found in Scripture chronologically, in Galatians 1, 8-9, Paul teaches this, But if we or an angel from heaven, in other words, exactly like what Muhammad or Joseph Smith claimed, right? If even an angel of heaven appears to you, and should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so so now I say again, if anyone, right, even if they're performing signs, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. In other words, it doesn't matter the splendor of their ministry. It doesn't matter if they're It doesn't matter how fantastic it looks if they are preaching a message that is inconsistent with what what God has already revealed in Scripture. They are a false teacher under the wrath of God. That's the importance of doctrinal consistency. Moving forward to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 20 through 22, here in the very first apostolic epistle ever written around 51 AD, the revelatory gifts were still in full operation at this time 
As Ephesians 2.20 states, God was still in the process of laying down a foundation of Christological truth for the church's future through the apostles and through the prophets. And yet Paul still says this, even at this very early stage of church history, he says this, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. See, even then, Paul was saying you've got to take everything that claims to be from God and you've got to test it. How? According to the truth of God's Word. As Paul says over in Romans 12, verse 6, prophecy is only prophecy when it is exercised, literally in the Greek, in agreement with the faith. And so Paul was calling on the Thessalonians here to be like the noble Bereans of Acts 17.11. He was calling on them to search the Scriptures daily to see if these things indeed be so, to test everything in light of God's Word. That which agrees with Scripture is good, Paul says. And that which is not consistent with Scripture, he calls evil to avoid. This is the importance of doctrinal consistency. And finally, nearing the end of the scriptural canon being written, Paul, or Peter warns in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon them swift destruction. Notice in this passage that Peter equates false prophets from the Old Testament with false teachers in the New Testament. Regardless if they perform any sign, regardless if they happen to get any predictions right, those who teach false doctrines, doctrines like God wants you to be rich and prosperous, to live your best life now, to never undergo any pain or sorrow or hardship in this life, those people are false teachers and false prophets, period. Why? Because regardless of anything they ever perform, regardless of anything they ever predict, they are doctrinally inconsistent. They fail the first and most important test of genuine biblical prophecy. That is why I said, and it might have taken you back last week, that is why I said without qualification last week that the Pentecostal movement, the modern signs movement, was founded by false teachers and false prophets. You say, how can you say that? I can say that because they fail this very first test of doctrinal consistency. Just looking at the first two founders of Pentecostalism, Charles Barham and William Seymour, between the two of them, what did they teach? This is not knowledge to me. Look it up yourselves. They taught that speaking in tongues, jerking violently, and making animal noises was the evidence and assurance of salvation. That is doctrinally inconsistent. They taught that sinless perfectionism is possible in this life. That is doctrinally inconsistent. They taught that one's sin, just one sin, dissolves one's marriage bond and makes you single in the sight of God. That is doctrinally inconsistent. They taught that cleansing from sin and from doubt could be achieved apart from faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is 
doctrinally inconsistent. They taught that the unredeemed are annihilated out of existence rather than judged eternally in hell. That is doctrinally inconsistent. And they taught that there were actually two separate creations. Adam and Eve were a separate race of humans and that white people were created on the special eighth day whereas everybody else was created on the sixth day with the rest of the land animals. That is doctrinally inconsistent. And yet we are supposed to believe that these revelatory gifts and confirming signs of the Holy Spirit returned after nearly 2,000 years in order to confirm the message and ministries of these men? They fail the very first test of genuine biblical prophecy. And that is doctrinal consistency. And those who have followed after them have largely done no better from preaching the prosperity gospel to the word of faith movement to oneness Pentecostalism, the people who claim these confirming revelatory signs are hardly known for their doctrinal orthodoxy. And I know I'm speaking in broad terms, but some examples like Benny Hinn claiming that there are nine members to the Trinity. How do you get nine and three? Trinity. Or when Kenneth Copeland stated that Jesus took on the nature of Satan on the cross, or when Joyce Meyer states that we can speak things into existence with the same creative power that God himself possesses. Regardless of what they claim, regardless of what they perform or predict, regardless of the glamour of their ministries, they are false teachers and false prophets. Why? Because they fail the first and most important test to evaluating the legitimacy of a prophet. And that is being doctrinally consistent with what God's revealed word says. So that's the first test of genuine biblical prophecy. Doctrinal consistency. The second test for evaluating the legitimacy of a prophet is personal holiness. Personal holiness. In other words, when someone is genuinely speaking the truth of God in prophecy, they will be living out the truth of God in obedience. True prophets of God are marked by personal holiness, by lives that are dominated and marked by submission to the truth of God, not by rebellion against it. They are marked by living according to God's revealed and righteous standards. And conversely, any self-proclaimed prophet who is living in unrestrained lust or greed or any such sin, proves himself to be a false prophet. Why? Because true prophets of God are marked by what? Personal holiness. And just like last time, this truth is taught throughout the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah 23 God is in the process of condemning the lying and false prophets that have infiltrated the nation of Israel. And he says in Jeremiah 23, 14-16, But in the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery. They walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of the evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. You say, well, how do you know that? You know that because they are marked by lust. They are marked by greed. They are marked by deceit and wrongdoing, by immorality and godlessness. And as God says here and in Jeremiah 23, 14, Jeremiah 29, 23, Ezekiel 34, 1 through 6 and elsewhere, immoral prophets are false prophets. It doesn't matter what they perform. It doesn't matter what they predict. Immoral prophets are false prophets. This is the importance of personal holiness. We see this in the Old Testament. We also see this in the New Testament. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, Jesus says to us, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, they'll look like they're genuine prophets. They'll have the clothing of it, but they won't be. They are spiritual wolves seeking to destroy you. So then how are you supposed to determine them and and see which ones are genuine and which ones aren't? Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, neither can a diseased tree bear bear forth good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Here Jesus is saying that you'll be able to recognize... False prophets by their fruits, and that certainly includes the fruit of their lives and actions. Those who demonstrate the fruit of personal holiness are genuine and have roots of righteousness, but those who demonstrate personal corruption are false and have roots of an unredeemed soul. You will know them by their fruits. Again, in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 2-3, through three, we already looked at verse 1, if you remember, where Peter says that we'll be able to know false teachers by their unbiblical teaching, but in verses 2-3... through three, Peter gives another criteria by which we can identify these false teachers, and that's by their unholy living. Peter says, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So there again, we see that false teachers are known by their lifestyles and the lifestyles of those who are under their influence. False teachers will be identified by their sensuality, by their greed, by their selfish exploitation of those who are under them, and by their abuse of others. Jude likewise warns of this when he says in verse 4 of his letter, for certain people, speaking of false teachers, have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, even though they've crept into positions of influence, you can still identify them because they are characterized by godless thinking, by sensual desires, and by selfish ambition. As one person put it, false teachers are marked by an unrestrained passion for either gold, girls, or glory. You will know them by their fruits. As 2 Peter 2.14 says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin they entice unsteady souls and they have hearts that are trained in greed again there are numerous examples that could be given 
of self-proclaimed prophets in our world today whose immoral or greedy lifestyles have come to light. Whether it be Kenneth Copeland and his three private jets in his own private airport, or whether it be the firing and resignation of multiple Hillsong pastors and ministry leaders over the last several years for adultery and even renouncing the faith, including the founding pastor Brian Houston just a few days ago for multiple accusations of adultery and extramarital affairs. And yet every single one of these people claimed to have had messages given directly to them from the Lord. All of them claimed to have had signs and visions and words directly from God. What do we make of this? How do we understand them? We understand them to be false prophets. Leaders who are marked by scandal and controversy and lavish lifestyles and moral escapades and greed, Scripture says, are false prophets, regardless of any prediction they ever make. Why? Because they fail the second test of genuine biblical prophecy, which is personal holiness. So three tests of the gift of genuine biblical prophecy. Are they doctrinally consistent? Are they personally holy? And finally, are they totally accurate? That's the third biblical test to discern the gift of genuine biblical prophecy. Total accuracy. In other words, when a true prophet speaks about future events or other unknown things, he speaks with, get this, 100% accuracy. Now again, this test is grounded in the very character of God. Since authentic words from God will always reflect His pure and perfect character, as 1 Timothy 3.15 teaches, those prophecies that come from Him must likewise be infallible and inerrant also. For God cannot lie. Can He speak in any way that is less than perfect? Can God speak in any way that is less than absolutely authoritative? Should I expect my children to say, that was a less than authoritative word from my dad? Or should they always think it's coming with authority? See, when God speaks, it is always in alignment with His character, with His perfection, and with His authority. There is no such thing, just based on the character of God, as faulty, not universally authoritative words from God. It doesn't exist. God can't speak that way. He always speaks in alignment with His character. Where was I? Oh, So when he speaks, right, when he speaks, it will always come true, right? What he has said he will do, as Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Well, what makes God so unique? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. In other words, what he's saying is when I speak, it will be absolutely precise, even to the degree of one little bird flitting from one branch to another that is how accurate god is when he has purposed something to happen and when he speaks if god has spoken it will happen the third test of genuine biblical prophecy is total accuracy the first passage that teaches this is deuteronomy 18 20 through 22 where moses says this warning the people of israel again of false prophets he says but 
The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord is not spoken? In other words, how can we know whether this is a false prophet or a true prophet? It says this, verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, this is how you'll know. If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. That's about as clear as you could possibly make it. If someone claims to speak for God, but then says things that are inaccurate or does not happen, that person is a false prophet. The same truth, this test of total accuracy is repeated, repeated throughout the pages of Scripture. Isaiah 44, 26 tells us that God confirms the words of his servants and fulfills the counsels of his messengers. Jeremiah 28, 9 says that we can know that the Lord has truly sent a prophet. How? When the word of that prophet comes to pass. As God says in Ezekiel 12, verse 25, the word that I will speak, it will be performed. In contrast to genuine biblical prophecy, the only thing a false prophet can do is wishfully hope that what he has said will come to pass. God speaks of these types of false prophets in Ezekiel 13, 3-9 when he says this, They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they expect Him to, literally in the Hebrew, they hope He will fulfill their word. In other words, there's no surety there the words. There's no total accuracy. To them, God says in verse 8, I am against you. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel, so that you may know that I am the Lord God. In other words, those false prophets who don't speak genuine, 100% accurate words from God will be totally condemned and cut off from God's saving promises unless they repent. That is what God is saying there. Are you getting a picture this morning of how serious God views it when someone claims the gift of prophecy, of direct revelation from God? When someone says things like, God spoke to me. If that is an expression that you have innocently picked up in your own life, you might want to consider changing your vernacular Because God takes the claim, God spoke to me very, very seriously. If you're not speaking about God's Word. Why? Because one of the tests of genuine biblical prophecy, one of the tests of whether God has actually spoken, is 100% total accuracy. Unlike what modern sign gift proponents teach, there's no such thing in Scripture as genuinely speaking for God, genuinely speaking for God, and only being right 60 to 80% of the time. It doesn't happen. That is not the biblical sign gift of prophecy. Those who speak for God, if they're speaking His words, will be true and right 100% of the time. Or to put it another way, according to God's Word, fallible prophets are false prophets. Fallible prophets are false prophets. This is the third scriptural test for genuine biblical prophecy. Total accuracy. So these are the tests given in scripture to discern the gift of genuine biblical prophecy. A prophet, a true spokesperson for God, must be doctrinally consistent, 
personally holy, totally accurate, all of the time. So now that we know the nature of genuine biblical prophecy, we can now ask ourselves this question. Do these modern experiences and claims to the gift of prophecy match the genuine biblical gift as described in the pages of Scripture? The answer, I will say, is a resounding no. There's not, there is not one self-proclaimed prophet in the entire charismatic movement who passes just the last one of these tests, let alone all three of them together. Now you might be thinking, well, of course. I mean, doctrinally consistent, personally holy, and totally accurate? I mean, that standard is so high, no one could ever achieve it. To which I reply, exactly, that is the point. The standard God puts on genuine gift of biblical prophecy is so high that when it is actually present, there is no doubt it is undeniably from God himself. It's miraculous. Because it's it's doctrinally consistent, personally holy, and totally accurate. That is genuine biblical prophecy. That is why I say... Whatever modern form of prophecy charismatics are referring to is is clearly not genuine biblical prophecy because those prophets who are truly sent from God teach the truth consistent with the word of God, live lives of righteous virtue, and never get their word of the Lord wrong. We just don't see prophecy like this anymore. And there's a reason why. It's because genuine biblical prophecy has a revelatory purpose. To confirm newly revealed, divinely inspired messages from God that would be authoritative over all men for all time. Once the foundation of truth was laid down for the body of the church with the completion of the New Testament canon, that revelatory purpose for the sign gift of prophecy was fulfilled. And thus, as 1 Corinthians 13.8 says, prophecy passed away. There was no more need for it. We have the fully sufficient Word of God that gives us a Second Peter one three all things that pertain to life and godliness and as Second Timothy three seventeen says this word alone makes us completely equipped for every good work. We believe in the sufficiency of God's word. The word of God is sufficient, as the great Puritan theologian John Owen once wrote. Since the finishing of the canon of the Scriptures, the church is not in need of new, extraordinary revelations. Rather, the church lives upon the internal, gracious operations of the Spirit who enables us to understand, believe, and obey the perfect and complete revelation of the will of God already made. New revelations the church neither has need nor use of. And to suppose the existence of necessary or new revelations existence or necessity of new revelations not only overthrows the perfection of the scriptures but also leaves us uncertain whether we know all that must be believed for salvation or whether we know our whole duty before god if new revelations existed it would be our duty to live all of our days in expectation of new revelation in whose presence neither peace nor assurance nor consolation could ever be found in conclusion If private revelations agree with Scripture, they are unnecessary. And if they disagree, they are false. Amen. If private revelations agree with Scripture, they are unnecessary. And if they disagree, they are false. May our desire as God's people 
never be for signs or wonders or prophecies or private revelations or experiences. May our cry forever be to the word and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, is because they have no dawn. We'll have to look at the spiritual gifts of tongues and healing starting next week. For now, I want to finish by reading the words of Jeremiah 23, 16-32, which directly addresses this issue of false prophecy and leaves us with the solemn warning that I think should echo in all of our ears. The Lord says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, but not from the mouth of the Lord. I did not send these prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. If they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lie in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own hearts? Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tells them and leads my people astray by their lies and by their recklessness when I did not send them nor charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. See, those who would be tempted to call themselves prophets or to say, God spoke to me or I have a word from the Lord would do well to consider the words of Proverbs 35-6 through which says this, Every, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. Let us not seek after signs or wonders, prophecies or private revelations. May our longing be for the pure spiritual milk of the word and for that more sure word of testimony which we would do well to pay attention to as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. What is the one word that can get us to that day? The one word that can bring us to when that day dawns? The one day that can bring us to that point when the morning star of Christ rises in our heart? What is the one word it is the one word more fully confirmed than anyone's experience ever it is the revealed word of god to us this is the word of god which i now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until that day dawns to that end as god's people let's pray Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. As we live in a world that is often confusing, where there are numerous truth claims being thrown out around us, we see that everywhere. We see that in the world and we see it in the church. 
Father, I thank You that You have not left us without witness. That You have given us Your Word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. That You have given us an objective truth by which we can understand all things in our own lives, in our own hearts, and in the world around us. Father, I pray that as the world grows darker and darker, that we would pay attention to Your Word as that lamp shining in a dark place. And as Your Word shows us Christ, we would long for nothing more than to know Him, to know Him, to know Him more. Give us grace towards this end, Father. That we might be faithful and true unto the coming of that day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.